We're going to continue in our series called The Perfect Series and uh, looking at how to manage our expectations. Many of the times our frustration in life, our frustration with other people, uh, comes from unmet expectations. And what does the Bible actually say about these expectations? What are biblical expectations we should have of God? What are biblical expectations we should have of ourselves, of the people around us? Uh, What should we expect from sinners? I think sometimes in the church, we expect sinners to act more righteous than we do. And uh, we don't even live up to some of the standards that we put on people in the world, and they have been blinded by the God of this age. And so we want to be careful that we are not experiencing frustration or that we're actually not experiencing the kingdom to its fullest because of the unmet expectations in our lives or maybe the faulty expectations. And so we've looked at one key verse from Matthew 5:48 where it says be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And as we've talked about the context of this Jesus is talking not about this idea that we serve this perfectionistic God that demands that we never make a mistake. If this verse is saying that we should get to the place where we don't sin or err or make mistakes, none of us are going to make it. Uh, we, it's just not what is intended in these words. What Jesus is talking about is that God has a standard of love that he demonstrates. You know, we sing about the power of the cross and how it never loses its power. And we love the cross. We love what Jesus did for us. But do you know, all he did was demonstrate kingdom. When you lay down your life, the power of the kingdom is present. And Jesus was the model for it. And we love to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Sometimes we just don't do so well at offering it in the same manner that we've received it. And that's why Jesus says, if you don't forgive in the same manner that you've received forgiveness, you won't receive forgiveness. You can't come into the kingdom and experience the fullness of the kingdom and not release the fullness of the kingdom in the same way. Because if you aren't, you don't understand the kingdom. So it's not a question of God's like, I'm going to withhold it from you. It's like you're not even receiving it. Because if you received it, you'd understand it. You'd understand what I've done for you and how I demonstrated it, and that would flow out of you to those around you. Now, again... We're not going to do that perfectly. We're going to make mistakes, and that's why we have the Holy Spirit to come alongside and to whisper in our ear and say, hey, that's not how you've been treated, or that's not who you are. I have remade you as a son or daughter of God, and you are now living below who you are. Okay, A lot of times we like to, when we discipline our children or when we discipline young people, uh, we use words that kind of label them. And We kind of, and we'll get to this a little bit later on too, but we exasperate them. You know, when they tell a lie, you're 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 a liar. Well, no, that's not who you are. You're a son of God. Lying doesn't belong in your life. There's a huge difference in that level of correction and the level of correction that labels. And so we want to be careful in the kingdom that we don't label ourselves, that we don't label those around us. A lot of times we label others by their actions, but we label ourselves by our motives. And that's the danger. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's like the standard of God's love is so profound and powerful. You should do good to those who hate you. You should love your enemies. 
Be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Be on that journey. You may not measure up to it, but perfection in the kingdom of God is not a destination. It's a journey. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, I haven't already obtained to this. I have not already been perfected. It's not a destination. I press on. I strive to lay hold of that perfection for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. I've already received it. I'm already made perfect because of what Christ has done, but I keep striving for that perfection to be seen in my words, in my actions, in my lifestyle, in my relationships. And that's why he later on in verse 15 says, let therefore those who who are perfect. I mean, which is it, Paul? I mean, you said in verse 12 that we've, we've, we're not perfect yet, but then in verse 15 you say we already are perfect. Well, yeah, we are. Through Christ, that's our identity, but we are constantly striving to get that identity to show itself. The last week, we looked at the perfect book. We looked at taking the Bible and making sure we're reading it as it was intended to be read. Some of you have asked about that book that I referenced last week, and that book is coming. It's a book that we're actually going to study together in the month of January that talks about remembering the Bible is a library, not a book. The Bible was written for us and not to us, that we should never read a Bible verse by itself out of context, and that all of the Bible points to Jesus. And we're going to take each of those four points and we're going to talk about them more in the month of January. And uh, those books are coming and they'll be available in the weeks ahead. And so just keep watching for information on those. And last week, I didn't, as I shared that message, I didn't get to the, uh, the thing I wanted to share about the slippery slope of compromise. And anytime we start talking about how to interpret the Bible in our context, making sure that we're interpreting it in the context it was written, people get afraid that what I'm saying is um, that sin isn't sin anymore. Because we live in a world where people are trying to move the boundaries. And I get that. Uh, That's not what we're talking about. Sin is still sin. How that works itself out in our lives sometimes looks different than we have interpreted it to look. And what do I mean by that? Well, if I was a missionary in, a, in the Middle East or maybe in a part of the world where polygamy is a culturally accepted thing, and sometimes polygamy is not just because of the, the sexual desires of men that are unkept, but sometimes it's just a, a result of the fact that in order for women or in order for the population to increase, uh, to everyone to have a wife, sometimes maybe more than one wife goes with a man. Now, the Bible says husband of one wife. We believe that there's a standard that God has for men and women in a marriage relationship, one male, one female. We believe that. What happens if I go as a missionary and a polygamist gets saved? What do I do? Do I just make him divorce all of his other wives? Does he still have a responsibility financially to them? How does that work itself out? Do you ever think about that? I think about that all the time. I mean, there are just times in our lives where there's a financial or a physical or an emotional responsibility. What does it look like when people get saved out of sin and you just don't get to clean it up like, boom, it just doesn't all get better. Sometimes when we talk about slavery in the New Testament, people are like, well, there was slavery in the New Testament. First, keep in mind that the slavery in the biblical time period was not the same as the chattel slavery that existed around the world during the time of the American colonies. 
Okay, that was based on race. That was taking people against their will and enslaving them. And it was based on a prejudice. People actually used the scripture to actually make that seem like it was what God intended. That's not what we're talking about when there was slavery. In, in this time period, if I had a debt that I couldn't pay off, I would actually sell myself to you as a slave to work off that debt. And so that's the level of slavery. And so there were parameters given for slavery. But why didn't we just abolish it? Well, in that time period, if you had just come along and said, no more slavery, what would have happened financially or economically to some of those people? Like you, and so that's why there were parameters given. But then we come to the book of Philemon, and the apostle Paul almost says, <laughs> you need to take Onesimus and set him free. But he doesn't go that far. And it's like, how do we understand the context of the Bible? And that's really going to come into play as we talk about what we're going to talk about today. And today is a type of sermon that I wish I had like several weeks to talk about, but I'm going to scratch the surface and I'm going to make some statements today that some of you are going to be like, hey, how did you get to that conclusion? And I'm glad you asked. But if you want to know, you're going to probably have to have some coffee with me and we're going to have to dig into that because I'm going to give you the result of some of my study, but I'm not going to take you on that whole journey because you don't want to be here till two o'clock this afternoon, right? All right, I thought so. So today we're going to talk about the perfect family. Oh, the perfect family. I mean, I don't know what you think of when I think of the perfect family, but I think of the cleavers. I mean, leave it to beaver. Like that is the epitome of the perfect family family. Um, I, I almost wanted to use the Cosby show for maybe a little bit more modern version of that, but with the stigma attached to that, I just didn't want to even go there, and I probably shouldn't have even brought it up, but there you go. But I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the perfect family. If you're like us, you maybe uh, have some family pictures, and there's always one kid in every picture that's just not cooperating. I mean, the eyes are red, or the tantrum is being thrown, and it's just like, could we just get one picture, please? And you, sometimes I laugh when I see the picture because I remember the fighting that took place to get that perfect picture to make us look like the perfect family that we could hang in our living room. Uh, we have one picture in our living room that I, I could have put on the screen, but I didn't. It was a gift. And so it was this, this perfect picture, and I won't tell you which of my children ruined that picture and that perfect gift that someone had given to us because Christy was their teacher that year, and uh, we remember that moment fondly. But there was also a time in our family when there was a block party that our, one of our neighbors had won a block party. So the, so the city threw us a block party. Christy and I were new in the neighborhood, and we're like, wow, it's a great chance to get to know our neighbors, and we're going to get to like, interact with them, and this is wonderful. No sooner did that block party start, but one of the children came running out of our yard saying, Kedrick bit the neighbor. Kedrick bit him. He bit him. And I'm like, no. Oh. And as a parent, you're just like, now we are the neighbors whose kid bites people. And so it's just like, and so you sometimes have to wrestle with the stigma of maybe what other people think of you. And a lot of times, here's the reality, they're not thinking that. We're making them, we're making it seem like they're thinking that. Um, and so as a parent in that moment, you just want to like react in a way that people are like, I'm going to punish him. That's terrible. We don't bite people. 
Um, but come to find out, the neighbor had pinned him down to the trampoline and was like his knees were on Kedrick's shoulders and Kedrick was trying to break free. You understand the frustration of being pinned down? Um, and so Kedrick bit him so that he would let him go. And I'm like, so in a way, it's just like, good job, buddy. <laughs> I mean, as a parent, so, you know, you want to be serious and be like, Kedrick, we, just, we don't bite people. By the way, I have his permission to share this story with you, just so you know. Um, and so it's just like, how do we react in a way that helps him understand we don't want to be biting people, but not overreact because I want to make sure the neighbors know that I'm a good parent. Um, and then all through the picnic, I had to fight it. I had to fight that thought and that stigma and the shame of, well, you know, uh, and some of you have maybe have no idea what I'm talking about. And you have no boundaries for your kids at all. <laughs> we'll talk about that too. But some of you maybe understand that. And you're just like, I don't know what to do. But here's the thing. When it comes to family, we cannot get our identity from our family. If you're in the room and you're single, your identity does not come from the fact that you're not married. Your identity as a son or daughter of God comes from Him. So whether you're in a family relationship as a husband and wife, or whether you're someone's kid, because all of us are, um, or you're someone's parent, or you're a brother or sister, our identity cannot be shaped by the people around us. It has to be shaped by who we are in Christ. And the expectations then that we put on ourselves or that we put on our family have to be shaped by Scripture. I believe family ought to be the place where you have the freedom to fail where you have the freedom to grow, where you're on this journey toward perfection, but you are not going to do it right all the time. And there should be a safety in the family. The dinner table at, at the home should not be this idealistic performance of what like, we should act like all the time. I mean, I love in our family, and I probably take it too far, and my wife is there to remind me that at times we take it too far. Uh, but I, I, want, I want us to laugh around our table. I want it to be a place of safety. I want it to be a place where maybe our kids don't say it the right way, but they're, they're willing to just open up and talk about what's going on in their lives. Because otherwise, I'm not going to know what's going on in their lives. And so when we offer grace and mercy to our family members, I think we bring the kingdom. I think we, we invite the kingdom into that moment. And you can't live in relationship with other human beings and not show grace and mercy, or you're going to live alone. Either you're going to live alone emotionally, or you're going to live alone physically. And so I think that as, at times we have to learn um, skills to, to communicate better. Uh, I talk to premarital couples all the time about being assertive. Being assertive means I express what's going on inside of me, but I do it in a healthy way. I don't condemn you for your behavior, but I let you know up front how your behavior makes me feel, how it affects me. It doesn't mean your behavior's wrong. I just want you to be aware that that's what goes on inside of me. And, and then you have to listen. You have to understand and maybe empathize with what I'm feeling. And you may not change your behavior, but you, we process it together. And we try to live in a relationship together. And learning those skills is sometimes a lifelong process. Uh, I love that I get to work with premarital couples all the time because it reminds me of what I'm supposed to be doing in my home and in my marriage and as a father. And it's a great reminder to me that, oh yeah, that's why, that's why my wife reacted that way because I, I didn't even listen to what she said. I responded to her, but I didn't hear her. 
And so those skills are super valuable. The next thing we have to learn is that God is interested in our wholeness first and our happiness second. We get this wrong in our American culture. We think it's all about our happiness. You know, we want our kids to be happy. No, we want our kids to be whole. And people who are really whole end up being happy also. But if you put happiness first, you won't always get to wholeness. You'll maybe get to selfishness. You'll maybe get to some levels of, of um, dysfunction. But you won't get to wholeness all the time. And so we want to put wholeness first. We want our kids to experience boundaries. One of uh, the, the, the curriculums we used to use with our, our parents was called Growing Kids God's Way. Um, growing Kids God's Way, the first thing as parents that you need to do is establish couch time. Couch time is where mom and dad sit down for 15 minutes every day and we talk. And uh, I know when you have toddlers, it's a little bit different, but when your kids get to the age where they can self-soothe, um, you teach them the most important people in this family is mom and dad, not you. We love you. You are an inheritance from the Lord. We bless you in the name of Jesus. But you know what? As This family is based on mom and dad. And we got to be together, and this has to be established if anything else is going to be healthy. So for 15 minutes, we're going to just, we're going to meet together. We're going to love on each other. We're going to listen to each other. We're going to maybe pray together, and you go do something else. And you teach them the world doesn't revolve around them. Our world needs this. There are far too many young people growing up today thinking the world revolves around them and their choices. And if we, they would have grown up in homes where mom and dad said, we love you, we value you, you're a blessing, <laughs> you're just not the most important person. We are. I mean, this relationship is. Because if this isn't good, then nothing we do for you will be good. Does that make sense? Uh, and with our spouses, we, we live in a world of irreconcilable divorces. Uh, I hesitate to even bring it up because I know the stigma that gets attached to divorce in the church. But in Malachi chapter 2, look at what God says. I hate divorce. But look at why he hates it. Because to divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. I mean, he doesn't hate people who get divorced. He hates the act of the divorce. And for those of you that have walked through a divorce, you understand that. You understand the, the pain, sometimes the trauma, the heartache that gets attached to a ripping apart of two lives that were supposed to be one. And that's why God hates it. Does God hate the people who get divorced? No. The Pharisees tried to twist this when they came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus says, they, they ask him, can you just get divorced for any reason? And Jesus says, haven't you read the scriptures? And I love it when Jesus asks the people who studied the scriptures more than anyone if they've read it. <laughs> that just, to me, that's just like, yeah. So you've read it, but you don't understand it. They record from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So then they say, well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Well, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. It was not what God originally intended. Ouch. Are you telling me that God made exception for divorce, not because it was his original design, but because our hearts were hard? Holy cow. Talk about selfishness at its highest level. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. If you've ever walked through a divorce, this isn't about shaming or condemning you. I'm not here to say that there's never a cause for divorce or that if you've committed divorce, guess what? It's not the unpardonable sin. Does it go against what God designed? Yeah, it does. But so do a lot of things. And ultimately, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, look at what it says. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way. That's the problem in a lot of our marriages. It's just selfishness. God doesn't want us happy. He wants us whole, and then he wants that wholeness to produce happy. We twist the scriptures in our culture today because God wants me to be happy. And so these desires that maybe I have towards someone of the same gender, well, God understands that and he wants me to be happy. God may want you to be happy, but he wants your happiness to come through wholeness. And wholeness, according to God in Genesis 1.27, he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is no scripture, there is no support for someone of the same gender to reflect what God originally intended when he created the, the marriage covenant. Now, do I respect the right of people to choose to live in a relationship with someone of the same gender? Absolutely. But am I going to call that what God has blessed and ordained? No, I'm not. Now, am I, uh, am I going to treat you differently? No, I'm not. Because my call to you, no matter who you are or what you believe, is to love you. Absolutely, all the time. But the standard is not happiness. The standard is wholeness. And to do that, Jesus takes us back to the beginning. So we want our expectations of family not to be where we get our identity from. Our identity comes from our relationship with God. We don't want it to try to produce happiness in our lives because it, it's about wholeness. And my wholeness comes from Him. So some, sometimes we think, well, man, if I could just get married or if I could just have kids, I would be whole. Can I tell you, if you're not whole without that, you won't be whole with it. It's just the reality. Uh, if you try to get your wholeness from something else or someone else, I love the movie Cool Runnings. Ha <laughs> don't you? Like, man, I just want to talk with a Jamaican accent, but it would be terrible. But I love it because the, he's striving so much for a gold medal. And the coach looks at him and says, a cheater. Says, if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. And that's so true. Like, if we try to base our happiness on other stuff other than my wholeness in Christ... It won't work. But in our families, we've got a responsibility. And we're all very familiar with Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. And I'll put the reference on the screen, but I'm not going to just read this to you. I actually adapted for uh, a wedding ceremony. I actually use this quite a bit, and I want to just read it to you. It comes from the love dare, but it's not just straight from the love dare. It's the love dare and my words put together for a wedding ceremony. And I want you, if you're a husband or a wife in this room, I want you to listen to these words. Because in Genesis, it says that God created a helper for Adam. Sometimes we read that word helper, and we think of it as a subordinate role. But there is absolutely nothing in this text to imply that the woman is a lower partner to the man. In fact, the Hebrew term is also used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God as our helper. So we see that God says it is not good for man to be alone, and God creates a woman as a helper 
to rule over creation with the man and ultimately to help display the glory of God on earth together with him. Then in verse 24, we're told this is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Interestingly, we are told that it is the man who leaves. It doesn't mean the wife doesn't also leave. But culturally, the wife has always left her family to join the husband and his family. Traditionally, she takes his name. Property and possessions traditionally stayed with the male to keep the family name. Yet from the beginning, God clearly defines that the husband and wife relationship is a joining together as one flesh in a new way. No other human relationship should ever take priority over this relationship. Two people becoming one flesh. And God makes it a point of emphasis in these opening chapters. The Apostle Paul echoes this in Ephesians 5 when he gives instructions to husbands and wives. Listen to his words starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. They feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. There's a lot contained in that passage, and we do not have time to deal with all of it. Through Paul's words, we see that the image of God is reflected not only through the husband and wife, but also through the church. The unity created in marriage and in the church is a supernatural work done by God himself. He is the one who makes the who makes us as the church one body with himself as the head, and he is the one who makes you one flesh with your spouse. Paul calls this a mystery. We have no idea how it happens, but it happens. However, we learn he makes us one flesh, but we spend the rest of our lives becoming one flesh. Ephesians 4.3 calls the church to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit unifies the church, but our actions will either maintain that unity or destroy it. And the same is true for marriage. This supernatural joining of one flesh needs to be maintained every day of our lives, and Paul instructs us how to do that. Wives, the call to submission is not a call to silently do everything your husband tells you to do. The word submit and the word obey are different words. The word submission has more to do with your attitude than your actions. It's about respect, honor, and grace. You have perspectives, thoughts, viewpoints, skills, and character traits that are needed every single day in your home. You will be tempted 
to try to use manipulation, anger, force, or other fleshly methods. But the call to you as a wife is to bring your perspective and your skills to the table in a respecting, honoring, and graceful manner. There may be times when you believe it would be easier to stay quiet and not speak up because of the emotional energy it would require. Do it anyway and stay respectful and honoring when you do. God put you into this marriage for a reason. Do not turn away from that responsibility. Be careful of the words that you use to speak to and about your husband even when he is not present. I'd also remind you, you are not his mother. It is not your job to fix him or mold him. It's your job to honor and respect him as a gift from God to you. Husbands, you have been charged to submit to your wife in your attitudes. Paul started the passage with the words submit to one another. But Paul charges you further to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Keep in mind, he emptied himself and became a servant to us and gave his life for us. In the moment when it says all authority was given to Jesus by his father in John chapter 13, in that moment, he got up from the table, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet as an example of what loving one another looks like. Remember, he has never treated us as our sins deserve. He extends mercy and grace to us each day. So you are not exempt from the call to love your wife if she acts in an unloving manner because even while we were his enemies, Christ demonstrated his love for us by dying. Learn to listen to her even when you don't agree with what she's saying. She is bringing a perspective you would not have without her and that is God's gift to you. She will probably be right more times than you are, but that's okay because you're not keeping score. It's not about deciding whose viewpoint is the most right because sometimes the compromise you find together reflects the will of God better than the perspective that either of you had alone. What the Apostle Paul means in the word submission is not always what is preached from our pulpits today. Keep in mind that that same word submission is given to us when we are supposed to submit to and even obey are spiritual leaders. And there are some people that don't treat that verse with the same validity that they treat the, the verse of husbands and wives. We're also told to submit to our governing authorities. And yet for some reason in the church, we act like this is like supposed to be this hierarchy that we don't actually bring into any other place. And so I think there's a way to interpret that that we don't interpret in the, in the way that we should in the Scriptures. I don't believe that God demands that there be this hierarchy in the home where the husband is here. and the, I think there's a responsibility we have to one another in the body of Christ. Could I be wrong? Yeah, I could. I don't think I am. I think there's a responsibility we have to each other. As parents, we're told in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 11, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and your minds. Tie them on, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Parents, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Why are we supposed to talk about the Scriptures and the commands of God in our daily routine? Because we're supposed to model it. If I model honor and respect by the way I treat my boss or by the way I treat my coworkers or by the way I talk about people in the church, that's what matters. Our children don't just pick up on what we say. They pick up on what we do. 
And we're called to be living examples. As a parent, there are times that I've corrected my children in anger. There's been times that I've corrected them without the full story. In fact, Kedrick's recollection of the, the how we handled the biting incident might be a lot different than ours. I mean, I tried to keep my cool and I tried to respond and find out the whole story. Maybe I didn't. And I hope in that moment, if I did it wrong, that I apologized to him. And I didn't blame anyone else or anything else, but that I took ownership and modeled for him how to do that. Because we don't model that much for our kids these days. Though it's okay to be wrong sometimes and to acknowledge it and admit it and to make amends for that. And that's why we're supposed to do it. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't just catch them doing things wrong. Speak life over them. Man, for every negative thing you say to your kids, you better balance it with five positive things. Psychologists say it's ten. Our kids need correction. They need guidelines. I mean, I'm not one of these people that say, oh, we just need kids to express themselves and be free. Yeah, within boundaries. Within boundaries that are not selfish. I want our kids to grow up being whole and thinking about the other person. But at the same time, I don't want to just nitpick them to death about everything they do wrong. Growing up in a pastor's home is hard. And I've never put expectations, I hope, on my kids that they have to behave a certain way because I'm a pastor. Anything I've ever told them is because we're, we're children of God. That's why we behave this way. And I don't let the expectations of other people into my home for my kids. But I do put high expectations on them because they're children of God. And I challenge you to do that. For children, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Obey your parents because they said so. <laughs> I mean, it's okay that people in your life tell you what to do and you just do it. Like, we don't have to push back on everything. We now live in a culture that questions everything. And for goodness sake, if there's someone in authority over you and they are not telling you to do something against the Scripture, just shut up and do it. I mean, it's okay to obey people if it's not compromising truth and it's not being a hardship to take you away from your family. When did we get to the place where we had to push back on everything? Like, teach your children that they obey. And obedience is not the same as honor. Because sometimes we have to disobey. But we always honor. If you're a child and you're in a situation where your parent is telling you not to tell something and you know that you need to tell someone, you know that you're being abused or mistreated in a way that goes against the commands of this book, don't keep silent about that. You disobey, but you continue to honor and you show respect for Respect is not something that's earned. It's something that's given in the kingdom. If I only respected those people who deserved it, I wouldn't be a very good son of God. And I don't respect people because they deserve it. I respect people because of the value placed on them and I want to protect my own heart. And the moment I start devaluing other people and disrespecting them, something happens in my heart that I don't want to happen. And that's why as children we're taught to honor and we're taught to obey. That's an important thing. There's also a command to the larger faith community. In our American churches, 
we really just, we want to come in, we want to have a nice service, we want to go home, we want to hang out with people that are like us. Um, that's not the, the commands of Scripture. Uh, I have a dream that one day the church is actually going to look like this. That's my dream. Uh, I don't do it perfectly, trust me, and you don't do it perfectly, but I want us to keep striving to do it. In Titus chapter 2, look at what it says. Older women, I'll let you decide who's older. Older women, likewise, are to exhibit behavior fitting for those who are holy, not slandering, not slaves to excessive drinking, but teaching what is good. In this way, they will train the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, fulfilling their duties at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the message of God may not be discredited. Do you see that, older women? There's actually a call to you to be engaged and involved in the lives of younger women. Not as someone who stands on the sidelines nitpicking and shouting in how they need to be better, but someone who picks up a towel and says, hey, help me, to, let, me, let, me let me serve you. Let me help you. Let me model for you. Someone that's going to go in our nursery and speak blessing and pray over the kids, not just babysit them so mom and dad can sit in here, but can see the value in, in working in kid ministry or in youth ministry and is going to like speak prophecies over them. Where are the Annas today? That when, chi when children are brought into the church, they get a word from God and they walk up to a new parent and they say, hey man, God just put this in my heart about your child and I want to speak blessing over them today. Not always nitpicking and correcting, but man, if you want to be, have the ability to speak a correction over someone, then you better start speaking 10 prophecies over those people. And in the, and in the church today, that, that's so foreign to us. But imagine how life-giving that would be for people. That's the call. In verse 6, he says, Encourage younger men. Likewise, to be self-controlled, showing yourself to be an example of good works in every way. There are other scriptures that talk about older men and our responsibility to younger men. Let's just stop criticizing the next generation and let's start serving them as the older generation in the church and picking up our responsibility to others in the body of Christ together. That's the role. That's what a perfect family looks like. It's not the cleavers. That's television. That's not real Real problems don't get worked out in 26 minutes. 22 if you count commercials. Real problems take time. It takes energy. It takes conversation. It takes a, a willingness to lay our lives down for each other. Maybe to bleed a little bit. It's not perfect. It's hard. But man, would that make a difference in our community. If our families our homes, as parents, as brothers and sisters, as members of the body of Christ, we actually lived up to this. One of the things I hope that I didn't do today is shame anybody. I hope I challenged you. I think the Word of God should challenge us. I think it should produce a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. By the way, repentance doesn't mean I feel bad or cry. It means I change. I changed my behavior. I changed the way I talk. I changed the way that I live. Some of you, you would never get divorced because of the stigma attached to it, but you share a house with someone that you're not one flesh with. And is God pleased with that? I mean, I love the book, The Love Dare, because it emphasizes the fact that the only person in a marriage that I can control is me. 
And if my wife needs to change, then I need to do something about my life to give her the the freedom and the space to change. Are there ever times that I have to have a, a tough conversation with my kids, with my wife? Yeah. Have they done it to me? Yeah. Do I always respond with, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I will be glad to work on that. Be- no, sometimes I'm selfish and I'm like, <laughs> that's how I respond. But you know what? I refuse to stay there. I refuse to stay there. There's a call to higher living. And so today, if you feel like I've shamed you, that was never my intention. And maybe the enemy twisted my words. Maybe I didn't say it right. Don't let it produce that shame and condemnation in your life. Let it challenge you to be different. There are some of you in the room I know today, and I didn't ask you to bow your heads because I want you to keep looking at me. I know there's some of you that grew up in a home where mom and dad did things that parents shouldn't do. And I don't know what that's like. But can I tell you, you have a father that does. And asking you to honor them, man, that cuts deep. But can I tell you, God is interested in your wholeness. He didn't author any of that pain. He didn't want it for you. But he's with you. And he'll help you. And you shouldn't ever put yourself back in a trusting situation with someone that hasn't shown themselves trustworthy. I get it. Whether it's a spouse that's mistreated you or a parent. But you can still honor them in how you act and speak and live. And so I know those words are challenging and hard, but there's a father that loves you and wants to walk with you through it. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, oh, God, I thank you that you are the perfect Father. And there is no one like you. God, thank you for putting us in relationships that help us to grow more like you. As husbands and wives, as parents, as children, as brothers and sisters whether biologically or in the stronger bond of spiritually. And God, I just pray for this body of believers. I pray for those that are watching online today. God, may we be a church that models what it's like to be the perfect family. God, not some picture perfect idea, but people that are on a journey together that are going to continue to grow together. God, whether in our our physical homes or in this community of believers, God, where it's a safe place, where when we make mistakes and fail, we don't shame one another. God, we challenge one another. But God, that we more often speak prophetically and we speak life-giving, hope-filled words over one another, drawing out the things that you see God, it's so easy to get nitpicky and critical and to just speak to the things that we can see with our physical eyes. But God, your ways are higher than ours. Your thoughts are higher than ours. And we will not change the definition of sin and we will not excuse behavior. But God, we will give room for the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives in different ways, in different speeds, 
And God, we will speak life to one another. And so Holy Spirit, show us how to do that without compromise. Show us how to do it in a way that models for this community what the family of God looks like. So God, show us where our expectations need to change. Show us where our actions, our thoughts, and our words need to change. God, I pray specifically for those in this room that have wounds from their past. God, whether from a spouse, whether from a parent, whether from a child, maybe that has walked out of their lives, maybe that has mistreated them. God, the only person that can heal the wounds of those hearts is you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd start a work right now that lasts for all eternity. Continue to heal and restore each and every one that's battling those things today. God, help us as a church to be the kind of people that can walk with people on that journey. And so God, thank you for the challenge today. Holy Spirit, help us to live up to it. This week we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. I hope those words were challenging and uh, I hope even more that we live them out this week ahead. The table in the back has the offering baskets, a lot of information about our church. I encourage you to stop by there before you leave today. And uh, if you need prayer, uh, I'll be available here on the side again for a little bit. And uh, I'd love the opportunity to pray with you or visit with you before you leave today. Make sure you greet someone on your way out today. Tell them you're glad to see them, even if you're not. Ha ha. All right. God bless you as you go today.